welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our latest review show, this month the reviews include Tenant, The New Mutants and Enola Holmes. And as Neil isn't here, I'll take his part <laughs> in his voice and enthusiastic manner. We also get the chance to speak about a film currently playing at festivals called The Magic Bomb. Uncanny. It was just like you. It was just like you. <laughs> Back to me now. And, as always, this Darren's Dash. This month's selection includes The 800, Bill and Ted Save the World, and the film probably Neil's watching now, Cuties. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Right, okay. He's going to go round your house and <laughs> kick you firmly in the balls, you know that. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, at this point, I would normally add a topical joke. But to be honest, it'll be out of date or surpassed by some new catastrophe by the time this show is. So I'm not even going to bother this month. Just Sorry. make sure you put it in Excel, Jeff. Yeah, I'll put it in Excel. <laughs> all in one cell. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. I am disappointed as I repeat Jeff's joke all month to my family and friends. You've been at my bloody script again, haven't you, Jeffrey? <laughs> Hi, my name is Neil, and I want to watch Jeff's Halloween movie picks this year. Hi, uh, um, I'm Phil Foster, and I have a website called Phil the Bear's Film Reviews at philthebearblog.wordpress.com. It's amazing. Excellent. Darren. Hi, my name is Darren, and if you want to read me wittering on about movies throughout the decades, you can find me on halfguarded.com. Thanks, guys. What a wide selection of movies we have for you this month. Proof that while there are some films that keep getting moved back to 2038, at least that's what it seems like, there's still plenty to see and enjoy. However, let's stop and kill that enjoyment immediately as we talk about Tenant. Welcome to the afterlife. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War Three. Nuclear holocaust? No. Something worse. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. And try to understand it. Feel it. The latest from director Christopher Nolan, or as Graham likes to call him, director Doyle. Don't, don't even ask. I said that once. I'm <laughs> never going to live it down. And the only big budget film released in the UK since March. A CIA anti-terrorist mission in Ukraine goes wrong and the only survivor is an unnamed agent known only as the protagonist, played by 
John David Washington. To help stop the people behind the attack, the protagonist is recruited into a mysterious organization called Tenant. Their aim is to save the world. But from what exactly? In breaking news, we have an upcoming show with Phil talking about Christopher Nolan. So I think the first word on this blockbuster should go to you, Phil. It's amazing, Jeff. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd be uh, concise because I know that you're going to poo-poo it. Um, so what can we say about Tenet? Um, I've seen it three times. Um, so, three times you've seen this? Yeah. Wow. So I really enjoyed it. I know one of the things that is sort of alluded to is that it's Christopher Nolan's version of a Bond movie. And I think that that's pretty true. I think that it's the two lead characters are kind of similar to Cobb and Eames from Inception. Or you could say James Bond and Felix Leiter, perhaps. I mean, I liked everything about it. I think that the two leads, so John David Washington, who's just called the protagonist, is charismatic. Don't butt him, Jeff. Um, and I think that given that he doesn't even have a, a name and, you know, we have to just literally go with the fact that he's dedicated to his profession, we know very little about him, if anything, really, but he still holds the film. I think that's really impressive. Robert Pattinson has been on fire in the last few years. He's done Good Time, The Lighthouse and High Life, and now this, and obviously he's got The Batman to come. He is excellent, I think, as the sort of Felix Leiter right-hand man. And actually, there's a little more to his character as sort of events unfold. The action sequences are incredibly impressive. The soundtrack with its sort of backwards bits and forwards bits is uh, bombastic and blows your ears um, out. I think it suits the film perfectly. I suppose if I was going to have some gripes, I think that Kenneth Branagh and Elizabeth Debicki play roles that they have done before. So Branner reminded me of his Russian bad guy in Jack Ryan. Debicki's wife, who's browbeaten, reminded me of her part in BBC's The Night Manager. Oh, I was going to say that. Yep, I totally agree. Otherwise, it's everything that a big action-packed blockbuster should be. Yes, it's a little bit mind-bending and you've got to get your head around it, but actually that worked for me. Uh, you know, the second time I watched it, I got more and I enjoyed it more. Um, and the third time I watched it, I was enthralled. So, you know, that works for me. It's a two-and-a-half-hour film and actually I've enjoyed it more each time I've seen it. Excellent. Well, you are a Chris Nolan fan. I'd be surprised if you didn't like it. Graham! I pretty much echo absolutely everything Phil's just said. I've only seen it the once. I thought it was fantastic. I sat there enthralled. And once I got the point that things were going backwards through time, not time jumping, the machines were not time machines, they were entropy inverters. Once I got that concept in my head about halfway through the movie, I was fully on board. I thought it was just brilliant. And as we've said before in numerous conversations, you know, Christopher Nolan's films bear repeat watching. And I think, as Phil's just said, this one will bear repeat watching. And I can't wait to watch it again 
and go in and do a complete film nerd thing and just pick out every single detail. I loved it. Thought all the performances were incredibly impressive. The two leading men were off the chart. Neil, what do you think? I agree with Graham. Okay, thanks, Neil. <laughs> Darren, what have you got to say? There was a lot I liked about this film. I thought it was great to see a blockbuster that had some like real ambition and wanted to do something really, really different. I liked the film. I didn't love it. And the reason why I didn't love it is because I really had a hard time grasping all the, uh, all the concepts. I, I got the idea of things, of the sort of like that you had two so storylines running, one going backwards, one going forwards. But I just couldn't sort of like get it straight in my head where everyone was going. There were some great twists, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, when the sort of the two storylines like intersected and things. And I would like to see it again at some point. I did have the same when I watched Inception. I do remember at one stage, feeling my mind actually just sort of like to relax and just sort of like sort of not bother trying to follow it anymore, but just like to watch it. This one is really difficult to do that because there's so much, you're always sort of overloaded of the senses at, at times. Otherwise, you know, as a straight, you know, blockbuster, I really did enjoy it, but God, it, it was tough to follow. What Darren just said there about in that first watch, he was having to concentrate really hard, et cetera. That was very true of me on my first watch. And when you watch it a second time, because you don't need to concentrate as much because you kind of understand what's next, you relax into it more and actually it becomes more enjoyable. Okay. Do you realise the contradiction you're all saying here by you having to watch it more than once to really get it? A film shouldn't be like that. A film... What, sorry, which... Um, I'm looking at the rule book now. Which rule is that, Jeff? Mine. In film watching? Oh, it's your rule. Okay, number, fine. My rule number four. <laughs> I don't think that's totally true, though, because we talked about a lot of <laughs> Nolan films that you know, on multiple rewatches, you get more out of them. Um, but you get to follow them the first time around. You know, Darren's just mentioned Inception. I had no problem with Inception the first time around because he laid the rules out. He had strong characters. You know, they had good motivation. This has got... I'm jumping ahead because there's a particular point I want to pick up to start off with, but I'll jump ahead. The characterizations are shockingly bad shockingly bad in this they can't even name the oh, washington cool. character time travel films are very difficult things to get right you know you've got to be so careful the way you set these up because there's obvious contradictions in time travel they can easily fall in in themselves that's why you know films like looper and back to the future they're so carefully constructed with strong characters and they avoid the pitfalls Tenant doesn't. It gets itself so confused. At one point, Christopher Nolan's going up his own ass as he's coming back out again. Oh, that's rubbish, Jeff. No, Come on. The sound. No, it's not. The sound. Half explained plot in. Sound mix is poor. And yet, at its heart, Tenant is no more than a pretentious remake of Time Cop. <laughs> John Claude. I, I love these discussions. They're brilliant. <laughs> by Kenneth Branagh and at least Van Damme's accent was real you know this whole business you can't be in the same space as yourself at least Time Cop explained that much much better and the plus side the set pieces are really good but without characterization unfortunately they're boring he's always said he wants to do a Bond film I don't think he's the right director for it 
to be honest, not based on this. He's great set pieces. He's like a new generation Stanley Kubrick, and I don't mean that in a good way. Right. Jeff, can I can I just say that you have got this film completely wrong? This is not, I repeat, not a time travel film. All right. It's a so time inversion back. film. That's oh, the point. Right. Okay. We've been on a 10-year journey with Nolan playing tricks with time and and memory and uh, dreams and now this is just the latest thing and he's not going to give you a time travel film once you get that point it'll all make sense so at one point when denzel washington travels back in time a week that's not traveling back in time he was just no it's not it's not he's inverted he has to spend the same amount of time to go backwards it's not it's not like a bill and ted where they dial the number and jump yeah there's no time jumping. You have to actually invert at a point, and then as you as you're going through time, you're going through time backwards, while everybody else is going through time in the other direction. That's why it's inversion. Glad you mentioned Bill and Ted. There, and Phil. that's why at the end, which really screwed me up, and I, I thought, why are the other team in containers? Oh, finally dawned on me because they know the outcome, and they can't tell the other team that's traveling in the other direction. It would be create a paradox it was just so well thought out jeff so well thought out yeah absolutely uh, i i am with darren on this it makes <laughs> no sense whatsoever it, it, i don't I think mean, that's what darren said what i said at all. Is. darren is that what you said, <laughs> that is not what I said at all. let's go back in time and check it uh, <laughs> i'm pretty sure that if i watched it again i'm pretty sure that Christopher Nolan has yes. all this mapped out perfectly. And the, if I watched it again, I'd be able to sort of see that. I'm, I'm sure he's got the whole thing, the, the, the whole thing does work. And you're saying that I had difficulty watching it. I didn't say it didn't make sense. Look, I like Nolan. I like his films. But this is a clunker, however you cut it. And, oh, no. and, and to be honest, it could also be the film that killed cinema. So that's how <laughs> bad this is. Oh, dear. I accept. I'm in the minority on this one. Even Neil, the invisible man, is siding with Graham. Okay, so generally the team like Tenant. Yes. Okay. So, Neil, over to you to get us the next film. (laughs) Well, that's our view on Tenant. To raise Mm -hmm. Jeff's blood pressure a bit further, let's talk superheroes. Our next review is The New Mutants. What's the last thing you remember, Danny? He said we had to run. The reason you survived is because you're a very uncommon girl. You're not alone. Not anymore. Do you know what mutants are? Would anyone like to share their first time? Rain? I was 13. I thought it was a dream. I just lost control. Sam? I started panicking. People got hurt. Roberto? My girlfriend had burned her. Ileana? I killed 18 men. One by one. Thank you. 
hospital, it's a cage. At a time where most films are getting pulled from cinemas, Disney decided to finally, after two years, release New Mutants. Set in the X-Men world, young Danielle Moonstar, played by Blue Hunt, wakes up in a secure facility after surviving a horrific event. Locked in with Danny are four other teenagers with special gifts. They all believe that they are being evaluated to be part of the X-Men, but are they? The New Mutants has a darker edge than other X-Men films. Darren, does this approach work for you? Yeah, it did. I found it really refreshing, to be honest. I've got to say, I'm coming from this perspective of a comic book fan, and New Mutants was one of my favourite comics when I was a kid. What I really liked about this film is it stayed true to the comic in the way that it focused a lot on the relationships. The, the New Mutants would, was basically a very much a, a school-orientated comic. So you got a lot of dialogue, you got a lot of talking between, you got a lot of sort of relationships and sort of different uh, diverse backgrounds. And I thought this did that really, really well. Anna Taylor-Joy just had um, Ileana Rasputin down to a T. I mean, in, in the comics, she was always sort of this, this dark character and she played her as this, like, you know, sort of, you know, really bitchy type. And I just thought she was absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed it. I did think it, it sort of fell into cliche towards the ending, but because it's a superhero movie, there had to be a fight with a, with a big beast and they all had to sort of team together. That kind of disappointed me. I would have liked to have seen something a bit more creative. And, and the problem is as well that, this film didn't feel finished to me. The special effects at the end look quite ropey. And from, from what I gather, the, the reshoots that they always wanted to do never actually happened with this film. And it did feel like that. It just felt there was something a little bit incomplete about it. I enjoy this a lot more than the last two X-Men movies. And I think it played more with the themes that are in the X-Men. It wasn't spectacular. Uh, I think it's probably one that people will sort of forget about because it was quite, you know, low-key and darker. But I, I really appreciated seeing something different. Phil? This is a weird one in that I think I did much in, more enjoy talking about this film than watching it. It's quite an oddity. It felt really weird watching it. It kind of feels like it doesn't entirely know what it wants to be. So the director, Josh Boone, is best known for drama, love story, The Fault in Our Stars. But he seemed to also want to do a horror film. So you've kind of got this teen romance, Fault in Our Stars type style, with a bit of a horror thing. But not really, because it's still a franchise film and he can't really have a proper horror film. It's a bit odd when they're watching Buffy on the TV and some of the characters in the plot are reminiscent of characters in Buffy episodes. That, again, felt a bit weird. Like, what's he doing? Is that is he doing that on purpose or is it a lack of imagination? I, I couldn't get my head around what that was. And it then it reminded me of M. Night Shyamalan's Glass because yes. that, that was set mm. in a psychiatric ward. This was set in a psychiatric ward and M. Night Shyamalan probably would be dreaming of the budget that Boone got for those special effects at the end of his for the final dust-up fight. I agree with what Darren said about Anna Taylor-Joy. She was easily the best bit in it for me and that's the bit where she kind of actually became magic was you know, comic book nerd like excitement. I didn't dislike it. I didn't love it. 
it just felt like it was taking from too many other sources and it, it felt like it didn't know what it wanted to be and it, it was a hybrid of lots of different things and it never found its own place in this world. Interesting. Thank you, Phil. Neil, you got any comments? I agree with Graham. But he hasn't spoken <laughs> yet. I still agree with Graham. Okay, Graham, what would you then? I went into this film with incredibly low expectations. I thought this was going to be absolute rubbish because of all the talk about them having to reshoot lots of it and the fact that it had been delayed for 50 years or whatever it was. I really enjoyed it. I thought it wasn't bad, despite the fact that I agree with both Darren and Phil uh, and Neil it just didn't know what it wanted to be. You know, there were some bits of it which, you know, for a non-horror fan were quite horrific uh, and quite jump-scary. Absolutely not, Graham. Absolutely not, but carry on. Right, you see? But I did (laughs) preface it with not a horror (laughs) fan. And I thought, oh, this is going to go really, really dark. And it didn't. And I thought, well, what is it? Is it a sort of, oh, that's a little bit scary, but it's not really going in that direction. And then... As I think Darren said, the fight at the end was a little bit clunky and I could see why they wanted to reshoot bits of it. But I don't think it gets away from the central problem with it is what is it trying to be and what is it trying to tell? Really should have gone straight to Disney+. Plus. Okay, thanks, Ram. It's interesting looking at this director's back catalogue, his character studies work, and I think he brings out the best. Not only in Anna Taylor-Joy, you've all mentioned, I think Maisie Williams gives one of the I thought she was good. Yeah, uh, and Alice Bragger as well. I thought we're all really, really good in this. Glass, certainly, as has been mentioned. Uh, I think it's, it's a lot more entertaining than we've been led to believe. I do think it is rough around the edges, as you've all said. But I also think, you know, given its short running time, it's very well paced. Generally, for a film that's been held up for as long as this has, I would say we all got some pleasure out of it. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. all right. Yeah. Thank you all for your thoughts on The New Mutants. So staying with cinema releases, we turn to something a little bit lighter now, The Broken Hearts Gallery. Do you see this tie? It's the only thing I have left from my last relationship. Why don't you leave it here? A nail, perfectly placed. Now look at that. It's like art in a gallery. I can help with the hotel in exchange for gallery space. Of course, we could use the help. You start tomorrow. Get us the coffee. Nothing with actual dairy. He gets really sensitive in his tummy. I hate both of you. It's like the Lucy. Nick? Can I come in? How did you get in here? You're roommates. I want to show you something. And you are not wearing any pants. (sighs) Those bitches. This map was here this morning? Yep. This is amazing. There are broken people out there like me. People who need to let go and move on. Is this the heartbreak thing? You're in the right place. Welcome. Are you ready to hand it over? It has an odor. We're in business, baby. Love makes you do crazy, stupid, irrational things. Remember me? What's this guy doing here? Guys. Welcome to the Broken Heart Gallery. Heartbreak is the loneliest feeling in the world, and the truth is, it happens to us all. I think you should put your penis in his vagina. Oh, I should put my penis in his vagina. Lucy, played by Geraldine Viswanathan, is young, career-focused, and vivacious. 
Her only problem is, whenever she thinks she's in a stable relationship, Lucy's partner invariably dumps her. After one such breakup, she meets Nick, played by Dacry Montgomery, who becomes a close friend. Together, the two of them plan the Broken Hearts Gallery, a place where jilted people can leave mementos from their exes. So did I find this film inspiring and would it inspire me to leave an object after seeing it? Yeah, I would, but you couldn't polish it. Uh, <laughs> Could you roll it in glitter? <laughs> you know, there was a time, right? When the late, great John Hughes was making relationship comedy, like She's Having a Baby, even Planes, Trains and Automobiles. And they were wonderful experiences. They were tightly constructed, funny, and had moments of real pathos. The thing that worked for them is they had great characters who were developed. They didn't start off running at full speed into your face like this woman does. The character of Lucy, I mean, is she on drugs? Annoying is just an understatement. And to be honest, I'm amazed anybody went with her and didn't break up on the first night. <laughs> I mean, the woman is mad. As the film develops, the character of Nick becomes more prominent. And to be honest, things do start to improve. He plays it low-key, and that is how a John Hughes film would have worked. Like Kevin Bacon, for example, in um, She's Having a Baby. It would have been that sort of character. And there's a point in the film, and quite a pivotal point, where the Lucy character reveals something to him. And at that point, she changes and she becomes really likeable. But she becomes really likeable to everybody in a way that she wouldn't have. And I think it's just poor writing by that stage. So I think it's a good idea. The central theme, I think, is quite clever. But it needed a really strong writer and an actress who could just tone it down a little. I really honestly couldn't disagree more with that entire assessment. So where do I start? So I went to cinema and I had the entire 350 seats to myself. And I found myself laughing, smiling, and just feeling really happy about the whole experience. I thought it was a perfect sort of new wave romantic comedy. I think the writer-director, Natalie Krinsky, did an amazing job. She really knows every single genre trope and she managed to do them all with the right sort of level of verve and self-deprecation. There's a bit where Lucy holds up a boombox. It just brought me back to John Cusack and say anything. I love that bit. And Geraldine Viswanathan was brilliant. She stole the show. She was, as far as I'm concerned, she announces herself as a major new comedy talent for you know any kind of, Seth Rogen film and all the rest of it, that sort of genre of comedy. She manages to fill her character with kind of a, a hopelessly romantic forlornness, but also being really vibrant and fun. I really believed her friendship with her two besties and, and I loved the, the karaoke stuff. And I thought that the slow burn romance that she had with the guy from Stranger Things really worked. And obviously a rom-com does live and die by how believable that central romance is. If you're listening to this and you have any sense of enjoyment from romantic comedies, you've got to see this film. It's just really great fun and a really good example of, of the genre. 
She was more of a stalker than anybody in love, actually. She kept toenail clippings of her exes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's really that, funny. That's not stalking. That's being weirdly obsessive and not being able to let go. She didn't actually stalk them after the event. Darren, do you want to come in on this? I've got to say that Lucy's the sort of girl that I would totally fall for. I just, I just, I just Ooh. thought she was absolutely wonderful in this film. I, I thought, I thought she was great. Um, she was funny. Uh, you know, her and her whole friends, the banter that they had, the one-liners. I, 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 there, were, there were many times that I found myself laughing at stuff, and also there were other times when I could see where something was going, like when she was making speeches, and, and you could see it all going wrong. I just thought it was great. It was, it was so much fun. It wasn't tightly plotted, but good logical writing takes um, second place to it being enjoyable and liking the characters and having fun and laughing. And, and that's what I got out of this film. It was it was so much fun. But, but the whole thing was funny, it was funny character. I mean, the, the one that I, I found really funny was the uh, the silent boyfriend who never said anything and, and seemed to know his, his, his place. I thought that, that was you know, funny. The circle of friends were very funny. The karaoke night, I did enjoy that. And the last part of the film I enjoyed. But honest to Christ, that woman just got right up my nose. <laughs> so, But other than that, it was all right. So that was an interesting discussion. That was the Broken Hearts Club. Let's go from cinema to streaming. And on Disney Plus, we have the one and only Ivan. Let's give him a great show, okay? The one and only Why do they want an angry gorilla anyway? You're a silverback. He terrifies humans. <laughs> You're not terrifying. Who's that? My sister. Where's your sister now? I don't remember. Memories never leave us. They just get out of reach. Whoa. Did you draw all these? A gorilla? Who draws? What is it? Don't tell me, don't tell me. It's a lonely haystack on a late summer day. It's a beetle. Can you tell me a story? Once there was a baby elephant who was smart and brave, and she needed to live in the wild where she could be free. Ivan! Not to be confused with the excellent The One and Only, which we only spoke about <laughs> last month. <laughs> the One and Only Ivan was originally scheduled to be released in cinemas in August, but was moved to streaming instead. Based on a book by Catherine Applegate and inspired by a true story, Ivan, voiced by Sam Rockwell, is a silverback gorilla who has spent most of his life in a small circus within a shopping mall. However, business is in decline and owner Mac, played by Brian Cranston, has some tough choices to make. So too does Ivan, who made a promise to get the other animals to a place of freedom. As freedom is one of the key words in one of Graham's favourite films, let's start with him. Was this Disney film worthy of cinema release or did they make the right choice in moving it to plus? I think they did make the right choice here. I thought it was a great family film. I really enjoyed this. I, I just thought, oh, this is going to be average film. But it actually 
got quite dark and very moral towards the end and went in a direction I didn't see. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, what a lineup of voice actors. Sam Rockwell in the main role as the leading man, uh, Gorilla. Danny DeVito as the dog. Angelina Jolie as the elephant. It was just great. And then Brian Cranston, I thought, was surprisingly good. I mean, the CGI is excellent. And Definitely a, a step up from the animation we saw in Disney's The Lion King. And the elephants in particular were much better than they were in Dumbo. So something's going on inside Disney. They're actually upping their game a bit. It left me with a sense of sadness and a, a bit of hope. The movie's got a quite a dark tone for a family film. It doesn't pull its punches, decrying the terrible treatment of animals in circuses. But if you're in the mood for a moral maze and some fun... For all the family, this is definitely a good film to watch. I liked it. Phil? Yeah, I agree. I watched it with my um, children. Um, we all loved it. The kids thought it was great and hilarious. It's an interesting one because I put in my review that it leaves you with a tear in your eye but a skip in your heart, and it seems to manage to balance those things really well. It's got a good track record in terms of people who made it. So Mike White wrote it. He's the guy who did School of Rock, which is obviously really uplifting. The uh, director, Fear Sharrick, did Me Before You, which I thought was a really good film with Daenerys Targaryen. What's her name? Uh, Emily Clark. Emily Clark. yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but that was kind of a, the... You know, she's a carer for somebody who wants to kill himself via euthanasia because of um, like the condition that he's in. So you've got the writer who's really good at this sort of uplifting stuff, the director who's really good at handling kind of sensitive um, material that's going to leave you crying. It was a really good mesh. It really, really worked. And for me, uh, I mean, Graham's mentioned Brian Cranston and, and Sam Rockwell and the others who all did a really great job. But I thought Danny DeVito's The Dog was just brilliant. I, he actually genuinely had me laughing through most of his bits I actually think I would have loved to have seen this at the cinema. I think, I think to be honest, I would have loved to see anything at the cinema over. <laughs> We're all with you on that one, yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mentioned it as well, Graham. The CGI is really good, and actually, I think that you know, on a big screen, it would have been really impressive. Yeah. the The other thing is that I w- was impressed by the CGI was that they've got past somehow that weird effect where when animals are talking, it doesn't look real. Danny DeVito's Bob, the dog, looked real and seemed to talk like a dog. His mouth didn't open wide. He was sort of only making small movements, but that seemed to solve that sort of weird effect um, that they had in The Lion King where when the animals were talking, you went, oh, this is just odd. And again, I agree, DeVito, his comic timing was just razor sharp on this. Darren, what do you think? This was a a really strangely plotted film because it it kept sort of going on little tangents and stopping and start. You have the thing at the start with the little girl and her dad who their mum was sick and then that never really got mentioned again. They seem to be starting to have a thing where Ivan might be jealous of the new little elephant and then that got resolved really quick. They all escaped and then that just sort of like turned around and we all went home. And, and then they got to the crutch of the story, which was Ivan wanting to be free and the public basically sort of um, protesting and coming out, you know, in, in support. 
and that just got resolved really quick. But this film was basically meant to tug on the heartstrings, and it tried every single trick in the book to do that, and it bloody worked on me. Because I, I, both times I got... There were times that, that I had tears in, in my eyes. I, I was nervous for some of the characters. So I, I was, I was, to be honest, I was really nervous that Brian Cranston was going to come in, turn into this like really you know, nasty character. When, when the stress started to pile, and I thought, oh, he's going to turn really, you know, start mistreating the animals. But they didn't go down that path. I, I just thought, thought this was wonderful. It was generally funny in places as well. I thought I thought the chicken was hysterical, the uh, the neurotic seal, all these little characters, you know, some characters. I thought I thought they were great, but it wasn't until the end in the end credits where you actually got the proper story about Ivan when they showed you the photographs and told how the fact that he he never got to go outdoors for like sort of I think about twenty years or something. And I think that sort of brought home the actual reality of it. But I think it was a really good way to sort of not be sort of like preaching to, to kids and the audience about, you know, about how animals are treated or anything, but doing it in an entertaining way, but then showing them the serious side of the story. And I, and I think that was like, that's a really effective tool that, that, that they use. <sighs> Again, yeah, I agree. I, I think... It is just a crying shame that this film never got to cinemas. I think it has a nice sombre tone. There are elements of Bambi in there. I thought it was quite interesting that Ivan's father dies off camera with a gunshot, mm. very yeah. much like Bambi. And I think that it would have been massively upsetting for small children being brought in to see it in the cinema. Like you, you just got drawn in with these characters. Mm. You know, you had talking dogs, talking gorillas, didn't matter. It worked so much. Sam Rockwell had that weary voice that he can put on and really brought Ivan to life. I thought he was tremendous. Full praise also to Brian Cranston. Mm, and I noticed yes. you said about, you know, that point where Cranston could have become almost like the characters in Water for Elephants and start cruelly abusing the animals. And I thought the way they did that was really clever because when the elephant sneezed and blew off his wig, you see the real person underneath. And at that point, I think it made him stop and him come back to where he was. Because this is a character who throughout his life had done everything his way. You know, that flashback to when he had had Ivan and Ivan was growing up and his wife left him. He would just do everything his own way and wouldn't think twice about it. But then you see underneath the real human being and how much he cared for Ivan and cared for all the animals, ultimately. So I think at the end, when you see him, he's without his wig. He doesn't need that pretense anymore. And I thought that was that was tremendous. I think, yeah, I think it's very moving, very uplifting. And the coda of the real story is shocking. We need two things now in this COVID era. We need more films like this to cheer us up. Or if we can't have them, circuses. <laughs> oh no so I think one we all liked just a very weird sidetrack on this did anybody see the poster for this film the poster is brilliant Yeah, it's all done in his uh, Ivan's painting style but it gives you the whole story and, it, and his name is signed like it, it's been done with his fingers and I thought oh the artist watched this and really understood what it's about super bright as well really colorful yeah and they've got um character posters as well for each of the different characters in the same style it's really good 
it's a real intelligent film. It is a winner from Disney, and it's just a shame that it didn't get to cinemas. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, time to move on. Let's talk about more on streaming. And from Netflix, we have Enola Holmes. Now, where to begin? My mother named me Enola, which backwards spells alone. And yet, we were always together. And it was wonderful. She was my whole world. Which leads me on to the second thing you need to know. A week ago, I awoke. Mother? To find that my mother was missing, and she did not return. I'm presently on the way to collect my brothers, Mycroft and Sherlock. Yes, Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective, my genius brother. He will have all the answers. Enola. Where's your hat and your gloves? Well, I have a hat. Just makes my head itch. And I have no gloves. My God. A wild woman brought up a wild child. Who will make her acceptable for society? She seems intelligent. There are two paths you can take, Enola. Yours, or the path others choose for you. It is time to find my mother. The game is afoot. Ah. Enola Holmes is another film which was originally intended for cinemas until COVID encouraged Warner Brothers to quickly sell the movie to Netflix. Enola Holmes, played by Stranger Things star Millie Bobby Brown, is the younger sister of Mycroft and Sherlock Holmes. She lives at the family home with her mother Eudora, played wonderfully by Helena Bonham Carter, until one day when Eudora mysteriously vanishes. Enola gets Mycroft, played by Sam Coughlin, and Sherlock Holmes, played by Henry Cavill, to come home with the aim of finding their missing parent. When it appears to Enola that the two aren't helping, she runs away and tries to solve the mystery on her own. Phil, is this just elementary or is the game afoot with this movie? Well, unfortunately, I don't have a brilliant pun to come back with, but it is a bloody brilliant film. Um, I, I would say, I know I tend to do this, but I always kind of, when we do review shows, I always think which of these films is my favourite and which would I watch again? And whilst I think I think Tenet is a better constructed film, this is the film out of all of these that we're talking about that I would probably watch multiple times and go back to because it is so damn fun. In my review, I said that when I watched it, it's the sort of film that brings words like ebullient, vibrant, optimistic, all these sorts of things to mind. Millie Bobby Brown's performance is absolutely luminous. I thought she was good in Stranger Things. I was wrong because this is just phenomenally good. I referenced the fact that the director, he directed Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, and I think that her little turns to camera and breaking the fourth wall, I don't know quite what it is about the way that Waller-Bridge and the way that Millie Bobby Brown do it. Maybe it's the hyphen in the name, but the way that they break that fourth wall and talk to the camera... It just seems to almost put like a, a zing in my step. I just, I love it. I think that the way they do it is really, really genius. Henry Cavill as um, Sherlock Holmes is bloody brilliant. I mean, this guy now has played an amazing Superman. He's got The Witcher. Is it Napoleon Solo that he did a brilliant? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and now he's Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he's nailing all the big characters. What do you think he brought to the character of Sherlock Holmes? Um. What I liked about his Sherlock Holmes is he had like this kind of knowing, 
wink in his eye. He so, so he clearly seemed to be one step ahead and knew what was happening, but he wanted to nurture Enola's sleuthing skills. So he kind of acted as a mentor as well as a father figure to her. And I just thought he did that so well where he quite easily could have been overpowering, domineering, smart Sherlock who just sort of stepped in and did all these things, but he didn't. He kind of knew that this is what Enola needed to give her a purpose. Graham mentioned Helena Bonham Carter. I mean, who else can play a slightly eccentric, crazy matriarch figure? Graham. What can I say? I mean, I love Sherlock Holmes. I've read all the books. I've seen almost every one of the films and TV shows. And this latest iteration of Sherlock Holmes was just so much fun. Realistically, Netflix taking this on, I thought, oh, it's a you know a cheap and cheerful streaming thing. It's not going to be great. But I was so wrong about this. It is one of six books from the YA literary franchise. Nancy Springer wrote those. Uh, some of the later books are much, much better. And But they made this early book, which is not a great book on its own. They really made it zing and sparkle. And I think all of that zing and sparkle is really down to Emily Bobby Brown, who was just so good in this role it was a bit of a balancing act she could have come off as annoying she could have come off as too you know slushy and it could have been too cute but she just nailed the role completely i did think it was great i i really think that the fleabag director um harry brad beers is it yeah i thought he did some great stuff in there to keep it balanced and fun. Yeah, all round, I thought it was great. I thought Henry Cavill brought that sort of suave Sherlock, which I've never seen anybody else do, really nailed that. And I thought Mycroft as well was just excellent. You know, Sam Coughlin had that and he was quite standoffish and he was quite official. And you could see the difference between the two brothers really clearly. But it was Millie Bobby Brown's film from start to finish, and she nailed it. And I cannot wait for the next ones to go. But Mycroft and Holmes aren't the Mycroft and Holmes from the book. No, no. they've Sorry, Mycroft and Sherlock. Yeah, but as as I've always said, it's like Shakespeare, it's like Dickens. Sherlock Holmes has been reinterpreted so many times. Nothing's like it is from the book anymore. You know, the books stand on their own and this stands on its own as a great piece of fun. I mean, the central mystery solved that in 10 minutes. That's easy. Still don't know why the mother's gone, but that comes out in the later books. Yeah, it's a great piece of work. Okay, Darren. I have to say, I I, kind of watched this begrudgingly. There was just something that didn't appeal to me when when I saw what it was about. But it it soon won me over. And the reason it won me over is because of Billy Bobby Brown. She's just so in- incredibly charismatic. And she just, in this one, she was just like this like, massive ball of energy. So it was uh, so wonderful. I mean, the first time she turned to the camera and started to talk, I, I kind of groaned a bit. I thought, oh, God, this is going to be one of these. This is going to get annoyed really fast. But, but it didn't. She was great. And you actually felt that she was actually talking to you that you were sort of like a companion on this. And, but what I really loved as well is there were times when she was 
look at her camera, she wasn't actually saying anything. Her expression said everything. You know, when she kept sort of, you could see her starting to fall for this like young companion that she had. And she kept looking at the camera. And yet in her eyes, you could see this, oh God, what's happening? This is really weird type thing. She was so good in it. And it was great. And, and I actually really liked the story, how it was basically. You had this like really bright, intelligent girl who was basically still thrown into this world that she knew nothing about and had to sort of to learn to navigate. And it was almost like you were almost like sort of with her all the way. And and I, I really in, enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. I, I, can I just say that you're, you're right. Henry Cavill's Sherlock is very much more controlled and very suave and sophisticated and th- thoughtful. While Robert Downey Jr.'s is just frenetic, he's just rushing about all over the place. And that was definitely Enola's role in this film. So I think the writers uh, and the director took exactly the right approach. Pull Holmes back to let her shine. And I thought that worked so brilliantly. But but also you can see Holmes as a, a character earlier on in his career. This is before John Watson. He may, yeah, he meets Watson, yeah. He hasn't become the aloof and almost arrogant character that you see people like Basil Rathbone or even Peter Cushing portray. Mm. Uh, and, and that comes through again with Benedict Cumberbatch and certainly uh, Robert Downey Jr. So I, I think you see him at the start of his career. And the same you know, with Kathleen. Kathleen is not Mycroft. Mycroft is, I really couldn't give a toss. I'll just do what I need to do and no more. But he was animated. He was angry a lot of the time. He had this, I'm going to do this for my family. Again, that's another character that undergoes huge changes in the books. Mm. As a film overall, it's very quirky. I liked it. it. It's very quirky. And with the speaking to camera, and I reiterate everything you said, really, Bobby Brown is excellent. But with that speaking to camera, that quirky quality, it kept reminding me of much older Sherlock Holmes films, films like The 7% Solution or, or indeed The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. You know, it had that sort of old-fashioned quality about it, the, the CGI that created that world. Again, like in Ivan, you know, it brought me into it. I believed it. I thought Harry Bradbeer did a great job in direction. Everything about it is really good. It brought you into that world. Daniel Pemberton's score is excellent. Mm. Only thing for me that failed is the central mystery. As you said, Graham, it doesn't take long to sort out what's been going on and who the real villain is of that piece. When you had these great characters, you have an overarching story developing with the disappearance of the mother that, spoiler alert, is not resolved in this film. You've got that going on, and then you've got this other piece going into the middle of it that is, you know, like a child's crossword puzzle. And it, and, and I thought it could have done a bit more with that. But it is a great deal of fun, and like everybody else here, I look forward to the sequel. And I think with the sequel, they have set up this world so well, so you know the look of it, you know what's happening in it. I think it'll be very easy for them to just drop these characters into the next one and they just take it from there because I think they built the look and the, the feel of the whole place so well that this they can just knock out the next five of these. Yeah, it's almost making you think Cavill's got to play Bond now because he's doing the complete set of all these heroes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just give it to him. That was good. Another one we all enjoyed. So let's go for a very special and a very different treat. 
The At The Flicks team were invited by writer-director Randy Gordon Gatica to review his festival favourite film, The Magic Bomb. Hello? What you just saw inside the bag is a suitcase nuke. They're called suitcase nukes. They're the size of something that fits into a small suitcase, but they have more firepower than what was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We know everything about you. You're trustworthy, right? 250,000. Look, we're not criminals. It's just the perfect criminal opportunity has fallen into our laps. You seem to have a lot of people interested in following you. I'm no saint, but I've never even considered doing anything that's this wrong or against the law. I will say that if I'm ever tied up again, I think I might kill someone. Get me that goddamn nuke. Sure thing. It'll be called the final war. People do not want the truth. People believe in stories. Stories become history. The truth is never a good story. It's a nightmare. Oh, we're way past a nightmare. New York City Mexican-American dreamer Conrad Lopez and his wife believe their lives have turned a corner. Then Conrad discovers he is a pawn in a game involving a secret organization and a suitcase nuke. Sounds like the plot of a Hollywood blockbuster, except writer-director Randy Gordon Gartica made this for no money. A real labor of love. Jeff, what do you think? Judging this movie on its effort, story, scope and budget, you can't really fail to be impressed. This is a blockbuster plot turned into guerrilla filmmaking. There are nods to Christopher Nolan in here, and to be honest, I enjoyed this film more than Tenant. <laughs> oh, God. As well as references to the Parallax view. The filming on the New York streets reminded me of The French Connection. It had that immediacy, just like Friedkin's film back almost 50 years ago. What also impressed me is that it captures a world of conspiracy belief that we live in, from the false beliefs of the racist to the watching of an elite all-knowing organisation. Are we now not seeing the very same things with all these COVID conspiracies? While the movie does try very hard, there are some aspects where, unfortunately, it does fall a little short. The dialogue's occasionally clunky and the performances vary. I thought Jonathan Iglesias, Maria Young, and especially Nicole Palermo were all extremely good. Unfortunately, Kenny Noel didn't match their level. But I put that down to maybe it's some of the things he had to say. He has some very strong speeches, which, to be honest, would have made any actor uncomfortable. That said, there is so much to commend this film. The editing and direction were really good, especially when you consider the budget and the time that took the film to make. My final words on this, it had a clear idea where he wanted to take the story, and it took you there. It seems a logical thing to say, yet how many Hollywood blockbusters, which have the same intention, can actually deliver the same goods? This, I think, is something to be commended. Darren, what are your thoughts? The feeling I got watching this was I was watching an actual filmmaker at work who basically had no budget. And that 
he was a genuine filmmaker. He had a real eye for um, for framing shots, for for editing. This idea of this being a really frantic situation and adventure that the main character found himself in, I thought it worked really well. Um, I, I love the scenes that later on when you'll get a scene of like, exposition interacting with with the with a fight scene. I thought it was like re- really clever. I really did feel like I, I was watching somebody with some real imagination as opposed to when I watched that really cheap film, that horror film, I think Sacrilege, when it was obviously just some guy who basically got a video camera and was just pointing at his stuff. This was like, a, you know, a, someone with a real vision. And I really like the scenes at the end as well, which showed you the aftermath of, of a lot of the fights where you, you saw the sort of, you know, the, the, the dead bodies on the ground and stuff. For, for some reason, it, it reminded me of some of um, John Walter's um, movies. I, I don't know why. I just got that, the way the, the bodies were, the way it was edited, that, that's the, the sense that I got of that. If it had got somebody who had an, a near for some dialogue, I, I think this could have been something like even more special than, than what, what we got. Okay, thank you, Darren. Graham? Oh, yeah, this film was so annoying, but not for the normal reasons. It was just, it had a great vision, it had a great idea for a central plot. The story was really solid, but he just didn't have enough money. And And as it went through, I was going, oh, that's a bit clunky. If he had more money... As Darren said, he would have been able to fix the dialogue. He would have got better actors. He would have got those tracking shots. Well, I think you're the actors, I think, uh, so there's one performance that stood out for me as was a real struggle. But I do think... I thought the girls were good. Yeah, for me, Nicole Palermo, I thought, was, yes. was excellent. We go and see lots of films, big budget films, that haven't got half the story of this one. And haven't got half the plotting either. And I really liked the, the shots in New York. Certainly, you knew exactly where it was. It's very vibrant. It was very, very well shot. But it's very low budget. And, you know, God, please, somebody give this guy a load of cash to make this and do a bigger production of this. Because I think this is a really, really special idea that he's got. And it could be so much more. That's that's an interesting idea to... Um... Yeah, to give more money to to do a bigger scale or even a a, a sequel to this. This should be a proof of concept. Look, this is what I can do. You know, if you give me some more money, I could do it much better scale. Yeah, okay. Phil? Actually, what Graham just said really resonates, actually. Maybe this is his LA takedown and somebody needs to give him some money so he can turn it into heat. Um, <laughs> yeah. The two things I was really impressed with was one, the opening sort of gambit of um, the kind of the magic bomb, um, the opening and how it kind of then did that Tarantino sort of flashback and pieced things together of how they got to that point. And I thought that the, the relationships between the lead and the two women was interesting and, and that played out quite well. And the other thing I was really interested in, which you've all said actually, is how well shot it was. I really liked the um, uh, the external shots, and and there weren't too many of them. And I, I guess that's obviously budget related. When Jeff was talking to me about how long this was made over in terms of period of time, I thought that it didn't look like it was shot over, you know, a year, and that you know there were mismatches and things like that, and it looked really impressive and sort of well put together. 
you have to forgive certain elements because of the budget, but it's certainly a calling card, isn't it? Um, yeah, definitely. And you know, we'll see where it goes from there. I'd be interested if you know there are things that he had to make compromises on, you know, because of his budget. You know, was that script? you know, different, longer, were there other set pieces in there? You know, what are the sacrifices that he had to make to get this calling card out and available, you know, to sort of show off what he can do? Yeah, and one thing for me, it made me nostalgic to go back to New York again. Really is a packed film. It's so much better than it deserves to be for this budget. For no money, he made this. That's incredible. It made sense in the sense of the film it was in. It was it wasn't doing just things like some fancy editing just to show off. It fitted with the with the pace and the feel of the story. There's a lot to commend in this film, and thank you very much for what I thought was a fascinating discussion. We are planning to talk to um, the writer director to Randy in an upcoming episode. Uh, I, for one, am quite excited to find out how we managed to make this film, given how low the budget is. Right, thank you for that reviews. Let's go over to Darren's Dash. Okay, so four films that I want to talk about. First one is V800. So this is a Chinese film which is set to become the biggest global box office film of the year because everything else has sort of fallen apart set during the time of the Chinese-Japanese war that uh, took place at the same time as the Second World War. And it's based on the, the true story of a last stand made by a regiment of soldiers and deserters that had retreated to a warehouse, was uh, situated just across a river from a British-held free zone that had sort of a neutral status and was also a, um, a refuge for, for refugees and that sort of thing. And they could actually see the battles taking place just across the river. Now, this film was absolutely epic. The battle scenes and the tension rivaled anything that you saw in Saving Private Ryan. There were times when there were little bits of elements of Dunkirk about the story. This was an absolutely wonderful film. The cinematography was absolutely wonderful. They did a really good job of scanning across the, the landscape. So you took in the, uh, the battle scenes but also could see the uh, the free zone just across the river. The battle scenes were absolutely incredible. There was just wave and wave of uh, Japanese sending various armies against them. So they would send regular armies in there. Then when that failed, they would send in um, uh, the air squadrons, they would send in this like, special sort of forces, like SES-type team, to sort of go in through the tunnels and take them by surprise. This was an absolutely incredible movie. This was an absolutely, a, a really emotional film. You, you really got into the characters, you cared about who survived. And the ending as well, when you came to like the final sort of battle and the, the final chance for the, um, for the troops to sort of make a dash for freedom, really got to you. Probably one of the last films I'll see of, of the year at the cinema, and it was so worthwhile seeing it on the big screen because it was just a wonderful-looking movie. Yeah, I'm jealous that you've seen it. I was talking to somebody the other day about the fact that the, the number one box office film is a film that has had a very limited, if no, release in sort of the UK and the US. I want to see this now. You've you've really sold this to me, and uh, it's, I presume it's never going to come to a streaming service outside of China, or maybe it will. I, th- I think it. I think it will. Virtually everything gets to streaming nowadays, but I think it's going to be one of these that's such a big hit 
I, I would imagine it's going to sort of do well like internationally for the for the Oscars and stuff like that. You, they, they, somebody's going to want to show this film. You, you'll get you'll get to see it. Trust me. I've, I've just googled it, Graham. The eight hundred is not streaming or available to rent or buy in the UK at this moment. <laughs> Thank you, Phil, <laughs> Assassin of Hope. Oh, right, I want to watch you. it. Oh, that's why I'm looking. That's why I'm googling. <laughs> I, I, I okay, now you've built expectations. What's next, Dan? Okay, the um, this is a film I saw quite a while ago, but I've, I've, for some reason I've not been able to fit it into any of my previous dashes. Um, Peanut Butter Falcon. So th- this was an amazing little uh, independent movie. It's all about a, um, a young lad called Zach who has uh, Down syndrome and he's living in a, in a care home and he keeps trying to escape. He's got one passion in life. He has one wrestling videotape that he keeps watching again and again and again. And on this videotape, there's an ad for his favourite wrestler's wrestling school. And so his dream is to basically escape from his care home and find this wrestling school and become a wrestler. Eventually, he does manage to actually <laughs> escape and, and make and, uh, and make a break for it. And he's pursued by his nurse, Dakota Johnson, who is basically told that he uh, she has to go and get him back, otherwise she'll lose a job. Meanwhile, Zach hooks up with a fisherman who's on the run himself, who is uh, played by Shia LaBeouf. And the three end up together going on like a Huckleberry Finn-type pilgrimage through the American backwaters to try and get this young kid into this, this wrestling school, which may or may not exist now. This is an absolutely wonderful, heartwarming film. Shia LaBeouf, you, you can tell this is the sort of film that he really wants to be making, rather than all this blockbuster nonsense, which, you know, this is the sort of film he's really into it's just a great little movie but the thing about this film is the story behind it is just as heartwarming as the film itself because um zach himself who is uh, you know has down syndrome he was discovered at a summer camp for uh, um, disabled um, actors and performers and some of the producers discovered him there and they were so absolutely enamoured with his passion and his desire to want to be an actor. But they pretty much made this film just for him to be in. It's on Netflix at the moment, and it's a, it's a really fabulous one. This is really worth uh, you know searching out. Two hits so far. Can you strike three? The third one, I'm going to... Um, Bill and Ted, the new Bill and Ted movie. Now... I've got to say, I was never as... A... No, then the answer's no, straight off, Darren. You can't <laughs> hit three strike. We've got... all seen it, mate. Oh. I've got to say, I was never a fan of the original Bill and Ted. Um, I always found them really, really annoying. I think I was just at the wrong like teenage age to be real into a film like this. So I wasn't really that bothered about this movie. But kind of got this like nostalgia for this one. You know, I, I, I really sort of, you know, liked it. I, I think I realised him that even though the, the dim-witted and annoying at times, there's like this good heartedness to them that just sort of really shined through. And I, I personally really like this. Uh, I, I think it was sort of like the, the feel-good film that you sort of needed right now. The thing that I sort of really enjoyed was the two daughters, uh, particularly Samantha Weaving. I just thought they were sort of so much fun. They, to me, were the highlight of the film. Um, this was fine. It, so it, it all sort of tied together really well. Um, it, it was probably just slightly less complicated than Tenant, I have to admit, when in t- trying to follow it. For me, it, it, it just worked really well. It, it was the sort of movie that was just what we needed right now. Well, I did anyway. 
<laughs> well, while I don't agree with uh, the overall sentiments, I, I, I don't particularly like the film, but I do agree with you on Samara Weaving. So how Samara Weaving, who just shines a light on every film she's been in, isn't a major star at the moment, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know why. I, I think she's going to get there. Yeah, I, I hated it. I really hated it. <laughs> I I could not get on with it at all. I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as to say I hated it, but I did not like it. There's a bit near the end of the film where Bill and Ted go, This is bad and then the daughters go really bad. And my wife and I looked at each other in the cinema and just nodded our heads. <laughs> <laughs> Super bad. <laughs> it was that sort of thing. To be honest, it's it's one of those films, and Darren hit the nail on the head here. If if you go and watch this film and just think of it as a nostalgic retread, I think you'd be fine. But I really like the first two Bill and Ted films. Yes, and, me too. And this just doesn't match up. And I don't know what everyone else thought, but I mean, the robot character who's played by the guy who was absolutely brilliant in that Hitman comedy on HBO with Bill Hader. What's that called? Oh, um, oh, he was in that, was he? Yeah, so the robot is um, the bald, like, nice oh, yeah. nice uh, hitman guy in, in that. Um, that robot character was just god-awful. And the Louis Armstrong impression... Barry. Yeah, Barry, that's it, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. What, what was everyone else's? Did I miss the point? But the Louis Armstrong impersonation and that robot were just every time they appeared on the screen I was just wincing. I um, agree on the robot, but not the Louis. I thought Louis Armstrong and I thought Jimi Hendrix. What the girls were doing was a retread of the first two films. And I didn't mind that, the rest of it. Bill and Ted were fun when they were playing teenagers or early twenties. Now they're in their fifties, it's just kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I agree 100% about the robot. In Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, there are two robots who are hysterical. And and so to provide some balance in this film, they bring this one robot who's unfunny, jarringly badly acted, and really, really annoying. And um, when he was finally killed, because I was the only person in the cinema, I cheered. <laughs> and uh, that's not a spoiler because nobody will care about his character. No, He's I, that I bad. and unhinged, and I got funny looks. Um, <laughs> I, I thought the robot was funny. <laughs> I just <laughs> when he when he kept when he kept accidentally killing people and stuff and just like screwing up everywhere. I thought I thought it was funny. I must have just been in a, a really good mood yeah. that day just to see. This. You were in a great mood. Yeah, I just yeah yeah. 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 Phil's just sunk it even further to me because he is so good in Barry. Yeah. And he is yeah, brilliant in Barry. Yeah. But the one, the other one on this, or I did think was good, is William Sadler back as death. Yes, I he thought, was good. Yeah. yeah. So little opportunity to do comedy and he's wonderful at it. Yeah. And I, I could have done with more of him and ditched the robot character. I'd like death to have been much more central to it. It's really weird yeah. though, but everyone who liked the two, the first two, didn't like this, and I didn't like the first two, and I like this. Yes. So it's, it's, it's weird. Well, they obviously hit yeah. hit the spot with you. I thought yeah. the two girls were good as well. I yeah, do the two girls, but particularly Samara Weaving. I, think I thought Samara, Samara Weaving was good, but I also liked the other girl. I thought she was quite funny, and her impression of her dad in the in the thing was spot on. So, if you like the first two, you won't like this. If you didn't, <laughs> you will. 
<laughs> I think that's the rules. Okay, yeah. well, one more film to go. Let's see if you can top it. This is probably the biggest controversial film at the moment. It's on Netflix and it's called Cuties. This one's about an 11-year-old girl called Amy who she comes from a conservative Muslim background. She falls in with a group of girl dancers who are practicing for a dance competition. And Amy comes up with the idea of doing a sexually subjective dance move, such as twerking, to sort of get noticed, get hits on YouTube and all that sort of thing. Now, the thing is, I, I watched this film because right from the get-go, there's been a lot of controversy about this film. And from a lot of people, frankly, hadn't even seen it when they were basically outraged by it. This is partly because Netflix really made a, a profile when they actually uh, created a poster for this film that looked sort of that was being told wasn't um, representative of the film. We went for a very salacious looking, um, you know, cover that offended a lot of people. So there was a, the, the knives were out for this film anyway, and. There was people defending it vehemently. There were people who were sort of completely opposed to it. But I, I wanted to basically watch the film myself just to maybe put my own uh, reaction. Now, the thing about this film is there are a lot of laudable themes in the film. So there's the whole idea of a girl trying to express herself in, within a re repressive culture. You've got the whole storyline now where um, kids today are basically exposed to a lot of stuff way before they are ready for it. They're exposed on the internet to sort of sexual themes and everything. Um, the, you've got the whole day of basically, frankly, crappy parenting. So these girls are just left to do whatever they want and they basically make, you know, they go down a certain path. You've got the idea of little girls who see the way to being successful in life is, to, is through the sexuality. So there's, there's a lot of sort of good ideas and, and laudable films in this thing and i think that the director did have some good intentions she, she approached this very responsibly she she had a, a child psychologist um you know she's talked to her parents about doing this film so this was meant to be sort of like you know something with something really positive to, to say and thought-provoking the problem is that this film no matter which way you look at it it all comes down to the fact that these are real 11 year old girls doing these suggestive dance routines and poses on the screen. And I've got to say, it did make, leave me feeling really uncomfortable. And it wasn't so much the, the, the dancing and the, the poses they were doing, even though some of them sort of went too far at times. Because some of the times when we were doing these dances, they just basically looked silly. They looked like little girls trying to do sort of, you know, adult things. It looked odd. It was the way the camera sort of lingered over them, how it sort of zoomed in on them at a time when we were doing these dances. It felt really wrong on these occasions you could see the reasoning behind why they would, would you know telling this story but I, I i i just was uncomfortable watching it there are some really sort of good things about it i did like the ending how at the end she basically decides to ditch everything and just go back to being a kid she, the, the final shot is her just dressing up normally and going and playing skipping rope with some of it with some new friends you know, that, that sort of thing of sort of like, you know, going back to innocent childhood, I, I, I liked. If, if you want a film about sort of like girl empowerment and, and girl space who's trying to find her identity through uh, through groups and things, try, try a film called um, Skate uh, Skate Kitchen, which is a really, really good film. You know, kids are a bit older than that. It's all about sort of kids' culture, that sort of thing. That was a really good film. This one I, I didn't care for. I've got to say, I, I think the outrage about the film is going a, a too far. I don't think that Netflix should pull this film. 
I think people, if they want to see, it, you know, but there's it's not the uh, the paedophile promoting film that people I'm trying to make it out to be. I think at the worst, it's it's questionable in the way it presents some of its its thing. I didn't like the film, but I don't think it's as massively dangerous as what people are making it out to be. What if this film had been made by a man? I imagine it'd be a huge outcry then, even more than we've got now. It was already a huge outcry. Yeah, a lot of people were defending, and again, it was people who had not seen the film were defending the film on the basis that it was a um, a female director who'd made it. You know, that seemed to be a thing that, or or you're outraged because it's a woman that's directed it. Uh, I'm very interested in what Darren said here about it's clear what the intent of the director was, but somewhere along the way that may have got twisted. Last word to you, Darren. Yeah, I'm just saying it. I mean, it did good reviews at um, at, at Sundance, and a lot of people were really sort of you know promoting this film. But it, it is the sort of film. It's a very much an arty type film. It's a very much you know an, an art crowd. You know, this, the sort of people. It's, it's not for the for the mainstream. That's a good point. Yeah, you know, and it's the sort of people yeah. who have wa- I get I think that. watched this and been out. If they have watched it, and been outrageous. They're not the sort of people that would be open minded to uh, to watching these sort of films. You know, art art house films generally, and particularly like European ones. I think they 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 push things a, a lot more than you will get in Hollywood, and so you know because they're. Their audience are, are probably a little more thoughtful and, and not sort of provoked into sort of like, you know, the, the sort of reactions that you're getting here. I think the problem with we, we, being on Netflix and getting this uh, is that it's being exposed to an audience that would be a shock to the system that wouldn't normally watch this sort of film. And, the sort of, and they're sort of the ones who are being yeah. like sort of outraged by it. Yeah, but they always need to be outraged, don't they? If yeah, that's, outraged, a, that's the at thing. least once a day. Yeah, it, it happens every so often that you, you'll get something that they sort of, you know, uh, want to be outraged by. And these are the sort of people who will be sort of like outraged and adamant about this movie and everything, and then we'll do absolutely sod all about kids who need help in real life. Yeah, you know, it's sort of uh, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's the thing. That's the way that these sort of situations go. Thank you very much, Darren. A, a very interesting dash this month. A couple of films I want to see in there, but not that last one. Okay, films of the month. So, out of all the films we've reviewed, which film would you rate above all others this month? Uh, Neil's gone for The Invisible Man. Uh, <laughs> Graham. Tenant. Oh, dear me. I've gone for one and only. Darren? Uh, the 800. Phil? Tenet. But yeah. with Enola Holmes slightly behind. Yeah, yeah I'd, uh, I'd probably go with that as well. Tenant wins and culture's lost. Okay. <laughs> no, Jeff, just you. Okay. Last month, we said amongst our shows for next month, we will be putting out a review show of films seen in the cinema. Unfortunately, we won't be doing that again for a while. But we do have a few Halloween treats in store for the spooky season. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. And welcome back for the end, Neil. So uh, it's a great mask you've got for 
The spooky season there? Oh, sorry, just realised that isn't a mask. Oh, you got me there, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) There is no future for you in impersonations, Jeff, I can tell you that. So we're going to need to hire some sort of mediator or something when Neil listens to the show. (laughs) (laughs) And to everyone else. Thanks for listening and goodbye. I never want to watch a film with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those are words my wife says all the time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 